Hello, dear listeners. My name is DM the Villain Joel, and um, we thought that we would uh, provide a bit of a um, recap of everything that's happened at the Chicago table thus far. Um, we know we've posted several episodes kind of in media res uh, that was uh, planned out, um, just because it's, it's a bit hard to sort of uh, force a recap episode. However, we are far enough into the module Out of the Abyss, we figured that uh, there's no point of really stopping what we're doing. Um, we all enjoy the characters, we all enjoy um, the table so far. So we thought that uh, we just kind of provide an opportunity for you to catch up on what has happened to the party. To those of you who are interested, and if you're not interested, that's totally understandable. Um, Honestly, this uh, campaign um, moves rather quickly with the settings, so I don't feel like it requires a bunch of background knowledge to really um, delve too far into it, even as a listener. Um, But nonetheless, we wanted to provide it to you all. Um, So we wanted to play Out of the Abyss uh, because uh, we just finished Curse of Strahd, where uh, TJ was a DM and he did an excellent job. We all had a really, really good time. Um, But we wanted to kind of continue in the same vein of doing harder campaigns, just because uh, we're the type of uh, people who just, you know, really enjoy a challenge. And so Out of the Abyss was kind of the the one that I had prepped for a while, probably a a year or two. and uh, we just kind of went with that. Uh, I've written homebrews um, before. I've helped out writing homebrews. Um, but this is the first time I've ran like an, uh, a real like written campaign. So it's kind of interesting so far. So we decided to record it and put it out there for you all and kind of present the Chicago table for what it is. Um, so Out of the Abyss is cool because it starts out not with any sort of forced way that the party gets together, but instead they are all captures, captured by the, uh, the drow, who are the dark elves. Um, in the Underdark, which is the area beneath any sort of surface-dwelling um, civilizations. And they are taken to a place called Velkenvelve, which is a drow fortress hanging from stalactites uh, built into a, the side of a cave wall and connected by um, silken paths of uh, made by spiders. Uh, the drow are very much a... Um, a, a, a slaver community. It sounds really horrible to say, but it is the truth. Um, they typically go to the surface to capture exotic slaves, and then use them in trade, use them for work, use them wherever they can. Um, they're a really brutal society. Um, I think it's kind of based off the idea that, you know, a, a spider oftentimes will will kill their mate and devour them after uh, after conceiving or after fertilizing their eggs or however that works. Um, and so that's the idea that's kind of been there with Drow. Um, I think they're a really cool race and civilization. I know there's probably some problematic aspects to them, but nonetheless, uh, we've had a good time sort of exploring uh, their habits and their, you know, the, the way that they live. Um, you start out in Velkenvelp and they are essentially all slaves. They are captured and they are prisoners and they are kept in a, a cage and that's where it begins. So you start in a, they start in a cage. Again, this is Rostos, the Minotaur, uh, Jin, the Wood Elf, uh, Soul Knife, Nico, the Yuan-Ti Wizard, and Dro, the Drow, who's actually um, from another part of the Underdark and since he doesn't, or was accused of not worshiping Lolth, their goddess, um, he was also captured. But we also have Howie, who is not going to be seen in the, um, the, the live play that we do. Well, I mean, maybe, I guess, could happen. But he, he did already pass away. So he was a dwarf bard um, that our friend Nick played, who hopefully will make an appearance in the future. 
Um, they were captured by a uh, drow priestess named Ilvara, who has you know a retinue of drows who works with her. And um, they were thrown into a cage with many, many, many other prisoners. Um, those of you who have read about Out of the Abyss or have played it before or whatever, you, you've probably heard about this. There are a ton of other NPCs that are available for the party to sort of like ally with um, and play through the campaign with. Um, what what I kind of did personally and, and what happened, honestly, I let a lot of it up to the dice rolls, was a lot of them either ran away or died <laughs> not long after, so I didn't have to run you know, 15 NPCs. But, you know, it ranged from like a, a kind of a classic bully type of orc um, to a quagoth who thought he was an elven prince um, to a dwarf who um, she um, got captured and taken down uh, who's very like lawful good. Uh, all the way to a myconid, a mushroom person named Stool, uh, who is currently with the party as well. He did survive. And Jimjar, who is a Svirfneblin, or a dark gnome, who is also survived with them. Um, what I kind of noticed early on, um, this is probably going to be a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look, is that the party sort of tended to gravitate towards these characters in one way or another. And so, you know, that's like when you make a mark on your character sh or on your your DM notes like okay let's let's keep these characters going there were several others there was a uh, a, a drow who was um, infected with some spores and acting weird and things like that um, and, and honestly most of them died because around uh, man probably 30 or 40 minutes into the adventure um, Jin actually stole the keys from the guard with a I think it was a crit 20 and um, managed to escape from the jail or help the prisoners. And then right as they were escaping the jail, there was an attack of these strange creatures who were clearly of demonic origin. And um, that's one of the first clues into the adventure. It's one of the themes of Out of the Abyss. It's not necessarily a spoiler because it's right there on the back. It's part of a larger module compilation called Rage of Demons. So I don't think I'm ruining too much there. Um, that they see these uh, these demons come out and uh, one of them was like a large um, fly-like creature. I picture kind of like uh, from the uh, Jeff Goldblum movie, The Fly, um, except he could actually fly. And they're called Chasmies and they would suck up the, uh, the drow captors just wholeheartedly with their proboscis, just whoop, suck them up. Which right away led to another aspect of um, out of the abyss that I think is important is uh, when the characters saw this happen, they watched a man be entirely devoured by a demon through this you know, thin organic tube, was they had to roll to see if they could you know, mentally handle seeing such a thing. And it's a madness table check, really. Um, there are multiple ways that you can be forced to roll on this sort of table in out of the abyss, and they've been doing it quite a bit and a lot of them have failed. So for example, Jin, uh, the, the Wood Elf, she actually started out with a level of madness already because she um, suffers from, well, she's neurodivergent is what we've been calling her, um, but she is has some form of split personality or a dissociative identity disorder, which I know is not the DSM anymore, but she has something like that going on. And now they all, most of them have some form of madness going on. It ranges from, you know, having to be drunk like Nico in order to be kind of more sane or uh, Dro at one point 
uh, he would just be really, really, really um, upset and almost stunned if he saw any sort of body mutilation happening, which is probably true for most people in general, but nonetheless, it became worse with him. So uh, the combination of Jin um, getting the keys and escaping from their prison in the cave walls and this demon attack that was happening at the same time allowed them to eventually head out into the rest of Velkenvelv, uh, where they eventually made their way down um, somewhat unsuccessfully as they all jumped on the same elevator, the very uh, heavy group of people, and the elevator went tumbling down quickly, smashed upon the ground, and they all took a lot of damage. Some of them were knocked out, some of them weren't, as a bunch of the um, drow-controlled wolf spiders, giant wolf spiders, came towards them. Um, again, the, around this time, the party is quite large. It's probably about 10 or 11 different prisoners, all from Velkenvelve, all of different races too, um, different ancestries, I should say, rather. And uh, they, they managed to escape, and they went further into the caves and tunnels of the Underdark. Now, I think we already re um, talked about this on the podcast, but just to reiterate, the Underdark is not necessarily a cleanly uh, laid out land. You don't really go from point A to B on a certain path. It's more like a wandering, meandering uh, set of, of caverns and tunnels and, and giant caves and underwater areas. It doesn't really make sense in the way that, you know, for us as people, if we were to go spelunking into a cave, it's all seemingly random. Um, if any of you have ever been to just a cave for like a tour or anything like that, that's actually one of the reasons that I wanted to play this is I went to the Mark Twain cave in Missouri and I hadn't been there since I was a kid. And it's, it's, it's truly terrifying when they turn off the lights or when you go into certain areas or, you know, they have areas called like the fat man squeeze, which you have to really turn horizontally to, to get through. Um, that's sort of one of the reasons I wanted to do this this campaign. And, and they went through a lot of this. Honestly, I'm skipping over a lot of the travel areas. Um, and another consistent part of the Underdark is the persistence of fungi, which is kind of fun because um, I already mentioned that there are myconids down here living and breathing and talking and thinking creatures that are basically anthropomorphized fungal creatures. Um, but also just wild types of uh, mushrooms and fungi, fungi that do, you know, Alice in Wonderland type of shit, you know. Uh, later on, they encountered some mushrooms that make them, you know, even grow and shrink in size, but there's some that explode, there's some that carry water, there's some that can be used as wood. So they ran into a bunch of different kind of fungal alcoves and uh, even fungal forests almost at different points um, as they've been traveling along. Again, a lot of this is really survival, sort of exploration type of stuff happening within this campaign um, that I, I enjoy because I think it, it, it sets apart all of the, the cloak and dagger stuff, all the politicizing, and then also all the combat as well. It just balances out those three pillars of D&D really well, um, the combat, the social, and the exploration. Um, as they were traveling through the, the caves and tunnels, at this point, they're basically running away from Ilvara, the, their drow captor, and her, um, her mercenary group. And that's really what's really driving them from just going any the fuck anywhere, fucking anywhere except for where they're at. And they come across this vast canyon that goes on as far as the eye can see, which, mind you, the Underdark is, as the name says, quite dark. And they see that there are connected webs over to these different stalactites and stalagmites, not unlike Velkenvelve, but 
a vast field of them, as far as they can see. And they are called uh, the Silken Paths, right? Uh, and there they see two goblins named Yuck Yuck and Spiderbait. Um, and these goblins claim to be sort of uh, almost like adventurers or, or, or leaders. Um, I almost think of like a Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea type of situation happening there where it's like, they know this land. They can help these people get through. And so they hire them. And not far into their journey across the Silken Paths, they realize that they are closely followed by Ilvara and the drow. And they actually see a drider, which those of you who might not be like incredibly dorky D&D nerds like us, you should look up what a drider is because it's one of the coolest, creepiest things. It's a um, uh, half cre half spider, half human, where they sort of have, it looks like a centaur, um, where the half top of their body is humanoid and the bottom part is largely spider. Um, Dark Souls reference looks like Quagoth um, from, uh, oh no, Quailana, not Quagoth. Quagoth is a type of D&D uh, monster. Quailana? Something like that. The spider lady. The lady who they make way too sexy that you feel weird about looking at? Her. It kind of looks like her. Um, but one of them is following them, which is a rather terrifying foe to be seen on a, a canyon calling at you and um, pointing its spear in your direction. So they start to move a little bit quicker. To make a long story short, um, most of the characters and other prisoners they escaped Velkenveld with perished in this moment, either falling off the um, silken paths or getting taken by the drider. Even Yuck Yuck and Spiderbait became, well, as one of their names implies, Spiderbait, and was eaten by uh, the drider. Um, they mostly managed to escape, save for Rostos, who uh, unfortunately got kind of caught behind and at one point um, somehow the, uh, the webs beneath him got caught on fire and he fell. Uh, very, very deep down, but got caught by more webs. So he fell very far down, and he heard a voice not far from him from a uh, character who is still with the party named uh, Fargus Rumblefoot, who is a halfling adventurer who came down searching for lost items of a civilization or even lost tombs or artifacts of a civilization that once lived above um, the world that, that seems to have certain things have just sort of worked their way down into the the underdark um he's told them many stories about these people um who i'll get into a little bit later when we talk about that tomb but he's basically down there as like a um what's uh indian jones what does he do he's a archaeologist he's sort of an archaeologist of sort but he's also highly annoying um he just doesn't know when to stop and it is great pairing him with rastos because rastos being sort of a uh, a minotaur of honor and combat not a man of many words, or a bovine of many words, he was uh, highly annoyed by uh, Fargus, which was lovely. Um, along this time, they were told, you know, as they, as they kind of climbed their way out of the, 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 the Silken Paths, uh, that there was a settlement of uh, fish people uh, called the Kuatoa. And the Kuatoa are basically, if you can imagine, again, an, uh, uh, sort of an anthropomorphic fish person, that's what they are. And they were told that there was a settlement nearby Velkenvelve where at least they could get to some civilization and maybe rest, uh, get some respite, and um, maybe just even sleep. Um, they had a hard time kind of finding spots to sleep. Um, at one point, they brilliantly sort of hollowed out a very, very large mushroom to sleep in its a large cap, which was beautiful. 
Um, they've noticed that the madness that has been pervasive within the group is not only pervasive within the group, but pervasive throughout the Underdark. Meaning that the Kuotoa seem to have sort of split themselves into two different factions. And the Kuotoa are already susceptible to madness just because they're sort of crazy fish people um, who they quickly found out are, are very religious in weird ways. They actually can kind of just on faith and belief alone cause a god to exist. So if there were to be some, you know, insanely demonic or I guess perhaps... Uh, you know, uh, other force uh, outside of their realm of, of perception, it can really, really tweak the way that they think and really cause you know, um, some some really odd things to happen. So what you had was you had two different factions worshiping two different gods, and one of the gods they call Limu Gugun. Now, uh, this might sound like a little bit close to a famous demonic entity from D&D's name, Demogorgon. That's who they were actually worshiping. Um, Demogorgon, for those of you who have heard this name before, maybe from Stranger Things, let me just say, Stranger Things, I shouldn't I shouldn't be rude. Oh, no, I'm gonna be rude, fuck it. Stranger Things fucking sucks. Um, it's fucking boring, I'm sorry. If you like it, that's cool, just go watch 80s movies. It's just like a bunch of Steven Spielberg movies thrown into a blender, all right, I'm done with that. But Demogorgon's not that type of shit. Demogorgon is like, 5,000 times fucking cooler and more terrifying than anything that a lame Netflix show could try to cook up in their crockpot of bullshit. Um, point being that uh, when even when just possibly by by hearing or, or hearing about or seeing a symbol of Demogorgon, you can lose your mind. It's just not an entity that is supposed to be in the material plane. And of course, you know, um, if you put a gun in the first act, it must take take place in the third act, right? So Demogorgon did rise up and the characters did see this. This was sort of a turning point in the um, the module, I think, playing through it because they realized that, okay, this is not us just simply escaping the drow while demons are sort of running rampant in the Underdark, but instead there are actual demon lords already loose in the Underdark. Um, a demon lord, as you can imagine, as the name implies, is this entity that sort of embodies chaos, madness, and basically all things evil. And I, I don't, I have a problem, I have a time, a hard time imagining what does evil actually mean. For me, it's just chaotic destruction, right? Or chaotic greed, or, or anything that really deserves to be put into check by logic. And uh, Demogorgon is known as the prince of the demon lord. So they watch him arise, um, and he's about 35 feet tall. He has two simian heads, two uh, baboon-looking heads with tentacle arms coming out, and then um, oddly enough, like reptilian or even bird-like legs. Uh, he's a really odd creature. I encourage you to go look up different images of him. I think the fifth edition uh, version of him looks the best. The first edition is hilarious, worth looking at, but uh, no bueno. Um, so get that idea of the weird flower-heady thingy that they have in Stranger Things. Just get that out of there. Just get rid of that right now. Even just by witnessing the visage of Demogorgon, they had to make a madness check. Just to give you the idea of the presence of what a demon lord can do to um, a, uh, a being within the material plane. Um, from then on out, things got weird. Uh, just the presence of the Demogorgon on the Kuatoa caused them to begin to mutate into horrible Cronenberg, John Carpenter type of creatures. 
you know, like some of them just developed eyes all over their bodies. Some of them started ripping themselves apart. Some of them started merging together. Um, the party did escape, but Demogorgon uh, kind of went all kaiju on uh, Slubludop and destroyed the entire settlement. Uh, or at least that's what they saw as they, as they ran away. Um, they did get out alive, uh, but, you know, not unscarred and not without further forms of madness. Um, they ran for a while, again, through the, the caverns and tunnels of the Underdark, um, hearing purple worms and um, seeing um, wreckages of different uh, drow settlements. Uh, it seems that the, the presence of the demon lords have also caused the fauna of the area, if you want to call it that, or maybe the monsters of the beast, to also become a little bit more aggressive. Um, you know, umber hulks, if you're a fan of D&D, another staple, uh, quagoths, uh, all kinds of different beasts, um, kobolds as well, uh, the little tiny dragon people seem to be getting a little bit more um, antsy, as well as um, the hyena-type people. What's their name, Jesse? Help me out. Hyena-type people. They are called not kobolds. Shit. Yeah, they're like weird hyena-looking things. Um, Yinagu is their demon lord god, so it's a shame that I can remember one of Knowles. G-N-O-L-L-S, right? So many Knowles running around, and just a bunch of different things happen. Fargus Rumblefoot, the halfling that uh, Rostos ran into, earlier uh, suggested and, and kind of was a dick about it and almost maybe even manipulated the party to follow his plan of going after the lost tomb of Chaim. And uh, Chaim is spelled K-H-A-E-M. I just like doing the ch sound. So um, the lost tomb of Chaim was uh, part of the uh, the Netherine. Netherine, I think it was Netherine. Last Tomb of Chaim was part of the, the Netherese Empire, which is what uh, Fargus was sort of looking into. And they're an ancient empire uh, that lived above, you know, in the, the surface world. Um, that sort of delved a little bit too far into magic uh, to summarize some certain things. And, and their, their floating cities eventually came crashing down in the ground. Some of those uh, buildings and structures actually went crashing so far down they were sucked into the Underdark. And, because of their magical nature, the Underdark has this thing that sort of suffuses all of it that's called the Phaserus. And Phaserus is a drow word describing this sort of um, latent energy, this latent magical energy. I, I even struggle to describe it as magic because it almost goes beyond just basic magic. But what it is is I think of it as almost like a, a type of like mist or gas that's in there that just sort of accentuates or demeans other actions, especially of magical in nature. Um, it does give off a soft glow of light. So uh, drow who are capable of understanding it are actually able to wield it in such a way where they can use it as, you know, basic form of like lighting and things like that. Um, this area, the Lost Tomb of Chaim, was rich with phaserus, very, very rich. Um, the party wasn't really aware of this and they actually have been affected by it multiple times. In particular, the wizard Nico, um, her, or their spells, sorry, they're uh, non-binary. Uh, their spells kind of would do either crazy things or would do nothing when they cast it in a, a heavily um, suffused phaserous area. 
and they kind of gave in to um, Fargus and they said, okay, let's go check out the Lost Tomb of Chaim just because it could be a way for us to get away from the drow for a while. Uh, and they did so and um, found out that there was uh, an ancient sorceress named Brysis who uh, was kept in this tomb and that the combination of Phaedrus with the presence of the demon lords has sort of woken her back up alive and caused her to not be the sorceress she once was, but instead this life force hungry wraith that um, basically she, she told them that the only way she'll be able to come back to life and, 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 and present in the material realm is if she consumes enough other living beings. So needless to say, this didn't bode well through the party and uh, Howl and Howie, who's sort of a... Um, uh, shock jock radio type of personality bard who uh, he, uh, let's say he was uncouth at best. Um, he was eventually turned to dust by the wraith uh, in a, a PC death, the first PC death we've had so far in the um, campaign. But they did manage to take her down. Um, Rostos managed to find a flaming axe named Flamenzunga um, who is sentient and capable of turning ablaze, which is nice for, nice for him because he cannot see in the dark. Uh, the rest of the party, I believe, has dark vision. Um, but more interestingly, while Nico accidentally turned themselves invisible, uh, they ran into a man, seemingly, who was watching them kind of run around this tomb in the midst of battle. And the scary thing is with your, when you're invisible, no one can see you except those of great power, those who especially have a certain type of sight, right? And um, this man introduced himself simply as he just said, a tourist, right? He just said, I'm just a tourist, right? I'm just here just kind of checking things out. Um, he talked to the party and uh, he, after they destroyed Brysis and uh, got Flamansunga, um, and he informed them that Ivara was not far behind them. Once again, she had caught up to them and he offered them, all they have to do is, you know, if he'll let, if the tourist, if they let the tourist go talk to Avara, all they have to do next time they see him is just entertain him, and he'll just take care of things. And the party, I might be sort of surmising here a little bit, but they didn't really see another way out from that situation. So they decided to allow him to go talk to Elvara, and him and Elvara left hand in hand, whatever that means, right? But the rest of the drow mercenaries and soldiers left with them as well, so they were able to escape. Um, around this time, they knew that if they followed around the Dark Lake, which is a large series of interconnected waterways and bodies of water, if they sort of follow around this ring of the Dark Lake, they can kind of get to different settlements and hopefully find a way out. Again, the nice thing about this campaign is you're, all you're trying to do is fucking survive or get the hell out of the Underdark and back to your home or back away, or just away from your captors and from all the demonic shit happening, which is quite nice. So the tourist goes off with Ovara. The party, you know, um, briefly weeps for the loss of Howl and Howie. And they go onward to the next uh, um, place they've heard about called Gracklestug. Along the way, they meet a Duragard, um merchant trader named Hemoth who, you know, he said, I can kind of show you the way, make it a little bit easier for you. Um, 
And they, they take him up on that deal, and he sort of warns them about the cruelty of the city, you know. It's kind of, out of, without the abyss, it's kind of out of the pan, into the fire, pretty much all the time. Um, and that the Grackelstug are, uh, the Gra people in Grackelstug, the Dwergar, which are the dark elves, just imagine meaner, greedier, did I say dark elves? Sorry, dark dwarves, very different. Um, imagine a dwarf, but darker and um, in complexion as well as just darker in terms of they have lived underground, so they have a different way of living. Um, and they are also slavers, not unlike the the drow, but they also despise the drow. So the party sort of weighed their options and decided, well, hey, if the drow aren't there, that's not the worst place we could be. Grackelstug, they found out, is very unfriendly to foreigners, although they were allowed to enter uh, and stay there based on some bribes that they made. Um, and they quickly found out that there are many different factions to the, the, the city. Um, the way I picture Grackelstug is this brutalist uh, settlement. It's more of a city than Slubladop was, which was a series of, you know, shitty tents and nets and sticks kind of put together. Grackelstug is founded with obsidian rock and forges, and there's a deep canyon that kind of cuts the city in half. Um, and it's fairly populated, uh, not only by Dwergar, but also by Darrow, which are sort of smaller, insane, gnome-like people. Um, really, really susceptible to madness, as they quickly found out. Um, as well as other foreigners who are trading, they are known as, the, uh, or Grackelstug is known as the City of Swords. So they're very apt at making uh, adamantine weapons in particular. And the way they make these adamantine weapons, uh, uh, um, Nico quickly found out, was via the flames of a red dragon, fully grown red dragon, corpulent, fat, wet red dragon named Thembershod. And Thembershod basically works with the dwarves to keep their forges going, but in turn he gets, you know, mass amounts of treasure, he has servants, uh, you know, at his every beckon called the Keepers of the Flame, and he basically lives a life of luxury, but also one of opulence and apathy, where uh, you can tell that he's actually kind of getting a little bit fat for like what a red dragon would be. A little bit lazy. Um, and they also found out that there are uh, people called the Grey Ghosts, who apparently are just this sort of like thieves guild, kind of working behind the scenes that are kind of messing with the politics there. There's the Deep King, who rules over Grackelstug. Uh, there are the Council of Savants, which are a um, group of more intelligent Darrow that um, have plans of their own. Uh, and they know that there is a character named Droki, who is also a Darrow, who is sort of a courier amongst all these different groups. And really what they're trying to do now, at this point we're getting very close to our first episode, is figure out how they can simultaneously stay in Grackelstug without pissing anyone off too much and getting some allies, because as of now, Nearly everyone they've met has either died or has been trying to kill them or cause them to, to go insane. Um, so that's where we're at. Um, while they're in Grackelstug, they run into some of the, the classic characters that we've talked about, right? Jim Jar is there, Stool, the Mykonid is there, um, Fargus is with them, but they also run into the tourist, uh, surprisingly not horribly long after seeing them, him, 
out in the underdark, they actually run into him at the inn that they're staying at, and he, he offers to pay for their room. Um, the tourist seems to have some sort of power about him. What that is, we don't really know yet. Um, he just seems to be very intelligent about some things and very aloof in general, I would say. Uh, he's very charismatic, incredibly charismatic. Um, I feel like some of the party members like hanging out with him and some of them don't just because he seems he seems like to, to be on another level. Um, but he's there, uh, and then um, they keep noticing that in different areas, various beings have been sprouting two heads, not unlike the two heads they saw in Demogorgon. So clearly there is yet another influence of not only just any demon prince or demon lord, but the prince of demons in general, or specifically. Um, and so they have decided at this point to uh, not necessarily ally themselves with Thimbershod, although it seems as though what they're going to do is kind of follow his directions first and then make their calls um, as to what to do with all this information they're given. That I don't want to go too far into. That's sort of episode one, episode two. Um, but that's where they're at right now. Um, I should also say that the nature of Out of the Abyss is that you are constantly, it's one of oppression, you know, and it's, it's not necessarily a very easily put together adventure story. It's one of madness, oppression, survival, and sort of chaos. So if it seems at times that you're listening to the podcast, or and I feel like I've, I've felt this from my players as well, that things don't really fit together neatly, that's because they don't. Um, and that's sort of the nature of most things anyways, is not everything fits together perfectly well. It's not going to be your more typical sword and sorcery type of story where there are heroes or anything like that coming along. Maybe they will be, maybe they won't be, but it is going to be one that's, uh, I, I hate that this term is pervasive now, but a little bit more Lovecraftian, where there are things behind the scenes that are just really difficult for a normal humanoid uh, to understand. Um, so I hope that catches everybody up. If you all have questions, you can post it on uh, the Patreon or you can email us. Uh, I'd be happy to respond or anything like that. But um, again, hopefully you're not too intimidated by the in media res style of us starting this podcast and hopefully you enjoy it. Um, be sure to check out everything that we're going to be posting over the next couple of months as we get this whole thing going. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening and uh, we appreciate you. And yeah, hope you enjoy it.